0: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Today, I want to talk about the worst parenting mistake I think I've ever made. And when I say that, the first thing I want to say is there will be a lot of you out there who are not parents, a lot of you who aren't married, a lot of you who are you know, maybe even in college or high school, and you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. This only applies to people who are in the thick of it. Uh, in parenting, and I would say, no, this actually does apply to you, and I'll tell you why <laughs> later on. Uh, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been working on a, a project having to do with with family and talking to a lot of people who have had uh, difficult uh, times in their in their own family life, whether it's. Uh, people who are having a difficult time uh, working through singleness, or people who are having difficult marriages, or people who are having difficulty with with parenting. And I was thinking about where have I made my biggest mistakes, and where are my biggest regrets? And there are a lot of them, so it's hard to hard to narrow down on just one. But there's there's one mistake that I made that I think I think explains almost every other mistake. That I've made, and not just in parenting, but in um, in, in the rest of the way that I uh, that I carry out my life, and maybe that's the case for you too. When Maria and I were working through the adoption process, we were adopting our our first uh, two boys. Uh, one of the things that uh, that goes along with that is a home study from a social worker, and we were nervous about the social worker coming in because. It's uh, kind of as though someone's coming in and evaluating you and giving you a grade on your on your house and whether or not your house is uh, acceptable for, for a child. Uh, so there was a, a great deal of nervousness that came with it. Turned out uh, it actually was a very pleasant experience. But at the the end of the time with the social worker, she started giving to us, uh, sort of her advice and her direction about how to uh, how to rear children. And she said, don't ever say no to the child and don't ever say anything that is negatively worded to the child at all. And I, I just said, ever? She said, never. Never say anything negative. And so I just said, well, what if your child were, say, running out uh, too close to traffic, are you not going to say, don't do that, stop, no, don't go into traffic? And she said, well, rather than saying no or don't, find a way to distract the child, maybe with, say, a, a big red ball. And She laughed. Maria and I, we didn't have children uh, at the time, but we knew enough about just basic human nature to know that what she was telling us was absurd. And I said to Maria, I don't ever want to be caught alone in an alley uh, with one of her grown children one day. And my wife said, well, certainly not without a big red ball. And we kind of thought about that for a long time, the, the mentality and the idea that, parenting is not about at all providing any sense of, of structure. So the, the idea of, of permissive parenting, of simply finding those points of connection uh, with the child, that seemed absurd to us, and I think rightly so. I think that, that mentality is absurd. But as the years went by, I think about uh, a lot an anecdote that I used to uh, tell often when I was in front of evangelical Christian audiences that would would agree with me on, on most things, whenever I was talking about parenting and, and discipline, I would uh, recount an incident that happened when our boys, our oldest boys, were three or four years old, and we were going through that time of fits and temper tantrums uh that, that would happen at that age. And Maria and I had one of the morning talk shows on as we were getting ready for, for church. And the talk show host said, after the commercial break, we'll be back to talk to a parenting expert about fits and tantrums. Maria and I said, This is this is what we need to see. We need to we need to find out how to deal with fits and tantrums from the parenting expert. And the parenting expert then came on after the break and said here's what you need to do when your child starts pitching a fit in in public. That was especially, I think Maria and I both stopped and were paying attention because one of our sons particularly would uh, just go into complete meltdown often in uh, public places and grocery stores and uh, so forth. And so we, we wanted to pay attention to what this guy said. And he said, What you do is simply kneel down and look your child that's throwing the fit into the eye, and you repeat back in a calm, gentle voice whatever it is that the child is screaming. So if the child is screaming because he wants a cookie, then uh, what you do is you just repeat, "You you want a cookie, you want a cookie, you want a cookie, you want a cookie. And the parenting expert said, eventually, the child's going to realize that you get what he's saying, you understand what he's uh, he or she is saying, and then the 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 temper temper tantrum will dissipate, and it will be uh, over with." And Maria and I listened to this for a while, and afterward, I said, "You know, if we followed that sort of advice, you want a cookie, you want a cookie." you want a cookie. We're going to build in habits and practices that are not going to stop with these small uh, acts of a lack of self-control. One day, we're going to be looking at a 20-year-old saying, you just robbed a liquor store. You just robbed a liquor store. You just robbed a liquor store. And the point uh, that I was making is a point that I believed and still believe, which is that these small testing arenas that we have when we're children about how to how to manage uh, impulses and how to gain self-control and how to, uh, how to deal with, with one's, one's temper. All of those things in those little bitty arenas teach skills that later on are going to apply in bigger arenas. I mean, that's a, that's a biblical principle that applies to all of us uh, in our lives, not just, not just to us when we're being parented. So I agree with everything that I was saying, but... The mistake that I made was that in rejecting the absurdity of what these parenting experts were denying, which is that there needs to be a sense of authority and structure on the part of the parents, I didn't pay enough attention to what it is that they were affirming that I actually needed to hear. And and the reason that this uh, sort of uh, stays on my mind uh, constantly is because that child of ours who was throwing fits and temper tantrums that we just thought he needed more structure he needed more um, he needed to be rebuked uh, more often and as soon as possible whenever he was uh, throwing the fit in in public as the years went on he calmed down uh, the fits stopped. We didn't have to to do that. But I would find myself constantly sort of uh, nagging him about how to make his way in the world. And so I would, I would say, you need to look people in the eye. Uh, you need to stop walking on your tippy toes. Uh, you need to – all of these things that – what I was trying to do was to make sure that these small little areas uh, where he was just – deviating from what I considered to be normal behavior. I didn't want those to become big areas where he was going to have difficulty uh, living in life. So I would just nag and nag and nag and constantly uh, be, be on him about that. Eventually, though later, uh, he was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, really, really high-functioning. Uh, but on the autism spectrum. And I started then reading uh, about uh, all, of the, all of the neurological and, and, and sensory uh, issues that come along with the autism spectrum. One of them, uh, not too many years ago, that is a little book that was absolutely devastating to me. It's this book called The Reason I Jump. Uh, and it's written by a, a Japanese a student who was um, diagnosed with uh, autism when he was uh, five years old. And it's called uh, The Reason I Jump. This little book written from the perspective of this 13-year-old boy with autism uh, was, was really convicting and devastating to me because uh, he, he talks about what it is like. To be on the spectrum and to have this sort of extreme sensitivity to certain sounds and certain uh, textures, and uh, how confusing it is uh, to live in a a so called neurotypical world when one is is on the spectrum, and the thing that was really important to me was the way that this 13-year-old kid was able to give analogies and to say, hey, this is what it would be like for you. What I have to deal with when it comes to trying to figure out what the mental and emotional state of the people around me is like, That's what this is what this would be like for you in another situation. Or here's the way that sensory issues Affect me. This is what it would be like for you. Be in a in a room with horns blaring all the time. He used, he used these analogies about this kind of extreme sensitivity to sounds and textures and, and things that were uh, were going on. And he said something in this book that I just I put it down and cried when I read it because he said in one of the questions because the way he writes this book is he gives questions that people might ask to those on the spectrum, and he tries to, to answer them. And one of them is, why do you do things you shouldn't do even when you've been told a million times not to? And uh, he, he says, us people with autism hear that all the time. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm always being told about doing the same old things. And it may look as though we're being bad out of naughtiness, but honestly, we're not. We're being told off. And we feel terrible that we've done again what we've been told not to. But when the chance comes once more, we've pretty much forgotten about the last time and we just get carried away yet again. It's as if something that isn't us is urging us on. You may be thinking, is he never going to learn? We know that we're making you sad and upset, but it's as if we don't have any say in it. And I'm afraid that's the way it is. And this was the line that did me in. But please, whatever you do, don't give up on us. We need your help. And then a little bit later, he says, true compassion is not about bruising the other person's self-respect. That's what I think uh, anyway. My mistake that I was making in sort of not being, I, I wasn't the sort of a parent who was yelling or upset or angry or, or or those sorts of things as as some people did. But I was the sort of parent who was kind of constantly in in my way of thinking of it on top of things and sort of coming in, here are all the life lessons that you need to to know. And I would get frustrated uh, when those life lessons just didn't seem to be taken into account. And it hit me at some point, not not very long ago, yeah. I believe in structure, and yeah, I believe in uh, not authoritarian parenting, but authoritative parenting, and yes, the sort of permissive, let me be your friend kind of parenting that we see often uh, does lead to, to terrible consequences, just as the book of Proverbs tells us uh, that it, that it would. But in the case of that son anyway, it became clear to me later on that throwing the fits really probably, in his case, wasn't about a lack of self-control. It probably wasn't about a lack of of self-discipline. It probably wasn't about an ungovernable selfishness. In his case, it was probably because uh, you have somebody who is pre-verbal, doesn't know how to express what it is that he's, he's going through, and is in a, a situation in places where the, the sensory overload was painful and, and confusing and unable to, to understand. And he probably didn't think that there was any way that we could understand that what seemed routine to us could seem torturous to him. Maybe he didn't want a cookie. Uh, Maybe he just wanted some peace from all the scary, confusing noise in the grocery store. And that's where I think that the parenting expert on television was partly right. Now, his his counsel was skewed because it, it fit in with a cultural moment in which almost... Any act of disobedience can be waved away as just a, a failure to communicate, a, a failure to understand. And it fits with a cultural moment in which often disobedience can be simply uh, medicalized. I, I, I can't tell you how many people uh, that I have seen who are parenting children and the children come in and, and say something disrespectful to their parents and the response that the parents give is, "Well, he has uh, he he can't tolerate sugar very well, and so he's he's just had too much sugar uh, today." Or uh, the kid burns down the treehouse uh, in the backyard. Well, he he really hasn't had his nap schedule uh, working uh, correctly, right? I mean, all of that stuff. It's it's easy to see through what's going on there, and that view of of human nature is sub Christian, and it's true that the Bible teaches us that what discipline is, is to teach, and to to teach in small things how to manage small appetites that are going to grow into big appetites and and can easily become insatiable uh, with time. Discipline is about teaching a child how actions have consequences, and and giving the impression that actions don't have consequences can be horrible uh, later on, uh, that applies even to to temper tantrums. A child who learns that a tantrum is a way to manipulate his or her parents is a child who's going to continue to have tantrums, and those tantrums are going to just change as the child grows. And so we all know people uh, in our lives who manipulate uh, people around them by their uh, equivalent of temper tantrums, whether that is with some sort of rage. So you, you think, I don't want to tick that guy off. Or with this sort of cold withdrawal, and you think, I don't want to go through all of that drama. Well, these are, these are people who've learned how to manipulate uh, in that way. That's also sub-Christian. And so what I was right about was that the teaching and instruction of uh, my children ought to be modeled after the the discipline of the fatherhood of God. And what God as Father does is to teach us in these, these small moments the sorts of, of skills and habits and practices that we're going to need uh, later on as joint heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. That That part was was right, but what I was missing was this essential part of the fatherhood of God is what the psalmist says when he says that God knows our frame, and he knows that we are but dust, and so there is a discipline that is indeed about teaching. It is indeed about setting up structures and, and boundaries, but... There's a gentleness and a wisdom that comes with that in knowing, uh, who am I dealing with here? So we're not behaviorists, but we don't think that each child is just another compartment of generic human nature. And that if you uh, feed uh, these foods, and if you uh, teach these lessons, and if you put into place these structures, that you're going to have this perfectly uh, predictable outcome. No, we're dealing with persons uh, created in the image of God, unique, different, and part of what it means to be a parent is to understand that and to understand, here are some issues with one child that may seem not to be uh, discipline problems at all, but need to be corrected, and here are some situations with another child that may seem to be discipline uh, issues, but really aren't or are something else. And so, my parenting that showed up in not understanding what was going on with my child on the autism spectrum, and again, probably didn't really manifest itself in ways that he would have even noticed. It was just mostly my internal frustration. Uh, where, where I would say to my wife, what? when is he going to hear me when I say, you can't walk on your tippy toes? Or uh, how many times are we going to have to tell him that you can't throw a temper tantrum in the middle of the, the Walmart? That internal frustration showed me that my parenting was trying to be godly, but my parenting was missing the the picture of the God who revealed himself in the cross. A God who, yes, is committed to justice and to, to order, but a God who also is mercifully seeking to save that which is lost. And so I thought many times that as long as I wasn't screaming or hitting, which I wasn't, and that as long as I was consistent and fair, Uh, with with all of uh, my children, and I think I probably was, that I was parenting well. And I thought, though, that I was preparing my son to make it in life, and I was, but what I was missing was adequately preparing him for the life beyond this life. Because the end goal isn't just adulthood. The, The end goal is? adulthood. That's that's part of it. You're, you're teaching and raising a child toward maturity, but that maturity doesn't end at adulthood. I was missing a key aspect of who he is, and as such, I was missing the end goal, the ultimate end goal of the kingdom of God. And so I wanted him to be normal in the way that I was defining normal so that he wouldn't have to deal with difficult situations later on in life but in doing that i really was focusing more on my achievement and my performance as parent and about you know modifying his behavior so that he would be able to make it rather than picturing the kingdom of god and and rather than being able to say okay i know that you have these particular burdens that I'm going to help you to bear. I know that you're experiencing these these sensitivities to certain sounds and textures and and I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be there with you and I'm going to help you through that. Uh, I, I was missing that part of it. I was missing the way that this the reason I jump book talks about that uh, constant quest, to be able to figure out where one can belong when one is is dealing with these particular burdens. Please do not give up on us. You know, I realized when I highlighted that passage that it wasn't just about my son, but it was about me also because I am not on the autism spectrum, but I'm constantly— sort of subconsciously pleading the same thing, don't give up on me. Uh, I, I don't want my children to give up on me when I make stupid decisions or when I fail as an example. I don't want my wife to give up on me when I'm, I'm not living up to uh, the, the highest ideals that I have for myself. I don't want God to give up on me most of all. Uh, like I've given up on others uh, in, in the past. And in, in seeing that all that is true, often I don't even know how to articulate that. All I know how to do is to cry out, Abba, Father, to, to groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, sometimes in utterances that are too deep for words, that, that cry of not just of desolation, but a cry of hope that one will be heard. In learning to do that, I need to learn better how to recognize cries like that from a little closer to the ground uh, on earth. I need to be reminded that I'm a father, but I'm a father pointing to another father, a a father who is uh, a, a God of great authority and structure and a God of Great patience and gentleness, and that sometimes the authority of God can be scoffed at as, as being, uh, any authority being oppressive, and that's wrong. But the gentleness and the patience of God can also sometimes be scoffed at as being permissive, but that's not how we've come into the kingdom. I've come into the kingdom as a child who's not here on account of my expertise or on account of my precision or on account of my brilliance, but on account of sheer unmerited gift. And often what parenting has been teaching me over the years is what I need to learn as I'm dealing with everybody around me, when I'm trying to bear patiently with people who have burdens that I don't understand, or sometimes even burdens that I don't even know about, and how to deal with myself when I'm I'm thinking through and uh, often judging things in the past or things in the present uh, with this unrelenting uh, sense of unmerciful judgment from my own heart. I, I need to realize that I'm trying to protect myself sometimes from burden. In so doing, I often end up protecting myself from life, protecting myself from God, and protecting myself from from love. At least at the intuitive level, I I think Maria and I were right about loving authority and about not uh, not being manipulated or or thrown by temper tantrums but we didn't know exactly what was going on in those tantrums and we didn't know how to respond to them rightly and i think that often often happens in every sort of relationship that we have it's something that i think applies to the church do we have a disciplined orderly church With high expectations, yes, and any church that doesn't have that is surrendering the Lordship of Christ. But in the church, do we also learn how to bear with one another and to carry those who are falling down? Galatians 6, yes, we teach one another. Sometimes that means correcting and rebuking one another. Often that means encouraging one another. I made that mistake in parenting. I think I've made that mistake in my Christian life, and maybe you have as well. But the good news, as always, is that God is gracious, and God is calling us all uh, toward repentance and toward carrying the cross and better reflecting the God whose face is there in the face of Jesus Christ. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.